It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. I had an experience the other day that I found really interesting. And it was mainly interesting to me because I noticed it in an interesting way. It certainly is something I've experienced before. It felt very familiar. But what felt new was how I responded to this experience. So to get specific, there's no need for me to share the full details. Not that I am hiding anything. I'm just don't feel like the details really matter fully. So I'm trying to figure out how to verbalize this in this moment. I'll begin a little bit more vague and maybe dig into it because I think that this is something a lot of people can relate to whether you've realized it or not. And it is the experience of feeling a physical reaction to an emotional experience. And what I mean by that is for me, I have like, Perhaps it's a feeling of like shame or embarrassment, disappointment, like certain tougher emotions. I can feel them really vividly in my body. And in this instance that I'm referring to, I had this experience of like disappointment, and yet it felt like there was more to it. And this is where my awareness started to kick in. And I believe that I, started learning how to identify these types of emotions. Again, whether that's shame, embarrassment, anger, sadness, disappointment, those sort of tough emotions. I think that I became a little bit more aware about those after reading Brene Brown's work. And in one of her books, or maybe in multiple books, she talks about how there are differences between emotions like shame and Embarrassment and all that. And I believe that she talked about the physical sensation of it, but I've certainly seen this in a variety of different resources that I've studied over the years. And it's really fascinating to me because I don't think it's talked about that much. And so the other day, I requested something of somebody else, and they didn't say no to me, but they didn't say yes in the way I wanted them to say yes. It was like one of those in-between experiences. And this is not with somebody I know. This is a stranger. That's like a customer service experience that I had. Again, the, the details really don't matter. And I remember feeling this experience or the sensation, I mean, of uncomfortable feeling flush across my body. And I was examining it like, why am I feeling this way? Like, this isn't that big of a deal. It's kind of a, a black and white situation. Sure, I feel disappointed, but why does this feel so physically uncomfortable? That's what felt really fascinating about that experience for me. And then I started to reflect on the fact that I probably have that physical discomfort, that physical reaction to an emotional experience more often than I've ever noticed before. And then I wondered, like, gosh, maybe this isn't a good thing that I'm noticing this, right? Like, Who wants to become more aware of feeling uncomfortable? 
right? But that's the whole theme of this podcast is that being uncomfortable is not necessarily a bad thing. Being uncomfortable is not something that we should necessarily strive to avoid. I think it actually helps for us to become aware of these things that we might be experiencing all the time, but maybe just haven't noticed because we've become so used to them, if that makes sense. Like we numb them down so much that our sensitivity to them, our awareness to them is just not very heightened, if that makes sense. And so I'm curious, Jason, if you can relate to this. And and if you're not really sure about the sensation I'm referring to, feel free to ask because I can elaborate more on what it feels like. In fact, I'll begin with what it feels like in here if you can relate to this at all, because part of what makes this interesting is that everybody has different reactions, right? Like we can't assume that the way that we feel physically, mentally, emotionally is similar at all to what somebody else is feeling. And certainly this changes from experience to experience. So for me, I tend to like get this It's a very similar thing when I feel shame and disappointment and embarrassment. All three of those emotions feel very similar to me and they sit in my body in a weird way. And you know, another example of when I feel this intense physical sensation, which generally feels like hot or warm in my body, it's like, since I'm not feeling it right now, it's kind of hard to describe, but it definitely feels warm like uncomfortable warm, not a pleasant warm feeling, like tingly. Wow, it's so interesting even trying to verbalize this. And I'm curious to hear if you can verbalize it, Jason. And then for the listener as well, like reflecting on, can you even verbalize these type of physical sensations that are connected to our emotions? But another example of when I would feel something like this is thinking back to something embarrassing or shameful I did in the past. (laughs) And every once in a while, I'm sure this happens to most people, I'll remember something that was really emotionally uncomfortable for me that happened long ago and wasn't that big of a deal. But because I felt shame, embarrassment, disappointment, one of those types of emotions, it stuck with me. It's lingered in my body. And so just the memory of that experience brings up this physical sensation Is this something that you experience, Jason, or that you're aware of experiencing? And if so, what does that feel like to you? I think for me, the other day I had, I had a reaction to what I perceived as being judged by someone else or the idea that I wasn't doing enough in a particular regard of my life. And I got really triggered by it. It's a little bit outside of sort of the shame or embarrassment aspects you're bringing up and how our bodies respond to those emotion, emotions and emotional triggers. But for me, most recently, it was just this idea of, I don't know, I'm doing the best I can do given the circumstances in my life. And if someone perceives that I'm not doing as good as I can do or doing well enough, it's like, I remember the feeling in my body was like, it was hot. There was heat. There was pressure in my head. There was a, a feeling of constriction in my chest, like my heart was I don't know, almost like retracting or trying to protect itself. And these are similar emotions, I think, to kind of what you're describing. It's it's in a similar vein for me, Whitney, in the sense that it's almost like there's a thought that triggers a belief system about something. And if the thought is out of alignment with that belief system, then there's almost like a panic signal or a danger signal that gets sent to the brain. Yes. Panic is a really great way to describe it. Yeah. And then the physical attributes of the thought, you believing the thought, 
and then the meaning you associate with believing that thought, right? So in my case, it was this person perceives that I'm not doing my best or I'm not trying hard enough for this particular thing. And you know, my trigger is, okay, you don't see me. You don't see the efforts that I'm making. You don't understand the challenge of what I'm going through. So now I'm angry at you because you don't acknowledge me for what I have done. You perceive I'm not doing enough. And then it's like my body starts to constrict and get hot and I feel anger because there's something in me that feels the need to defend myself, right? It's almost like this red alert of you have to set the record straight and make this person see clearly because they're clearly not seeing you. But what's that about? It's like, so what? There's a ton of people on the planet that don't know who I am, don't see me clearly or have assumptions about me who don't know me. But if it's a particular person in my life that maybe there's a deeper level of intimacy, like it's almost opposite ends of the spectrum. Yours is customer service. This person clearly doesn't know you. In this case, it was like this person that I know in my life was like, why? Okay. But there's always that possibility, Whitney, that we are not seeing reality clearly. If our belief systems or our unhealed trauma or something someone says or does is confirming something we believe ourselves, because here's the interesting thing about my particular situation, is there is a part of me that beats myself up for, quote, not doing enough or not doing my best, right? So it was almost like there was this other edge of the sword that a person was communicating something to me, an observation they had that I interpreted perhaps incorrectly of they don't think I'm doing my best. They didn't specifically say that. That's how my brain interpreted the information which is almost like a confirmation bias of, oh, someone's pointing out something you believe about yourself and that's why it's triggering you. Because the recesses of my mind, it's this thing of you're not doing enough, you're not whatever. The whole not enoughness conversation that I still struggle with. And so it's interesting that our private conversations or perceptions about ourselves are one thing, but then when a person points out something we believe about ourselves that we're ashamed of believing about ourselves, in my instance, right? It's like there's a sense of shame that I still beat myself up so much sometimes, Whitney. There's a sense of shame that I'm still so punitive and cruel to myself sometimes. So when someone points that out or they piggyback on a belief I already have about myself, that's when the emotions come up. That's when the fire, that's when the anger comes up. Because it's like, I could be pissed off at them for pointing it out, but the reality is I'm more angry at myself for still believing that I'm not enough, for still beating myself up in those ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that's part of this awareness process is realizing what these feelings mean, what they reveal about ourselves. And sometimes it's simply that we feel uncomfortable acknowledging some of these deeper things within us that are being triggered in that moment. Like for me, in that customer service experience, I was expecting one thing and got another. So, number one, a lot of the times that I feel uncomfortable are when my expectations aren't met. And in that specific scenario, I was blaming myself. First of all, I was like, well, shouldn't have had expectations. That's bad to have expectations, right? So I was judging myself for having an expectation in the first place. Right. Number two was, oh, the reason that your expectations weren't met is because of something that you did and you meaning myself. Like that's my self-talk is you messed up and now you're paying the consequences. And that to me is a huge trigger. Like whenever I feel like I'm being punished or I have to like deal with a consequence of my actions, I feel 
really intense, I guess, shame, right? And it's always so interesting to examine the differences between shamed. Brene Brown says that shame is a painful feeling of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. And that unworthiness, I think, comes up for me in these moments like customer service, where I feel like because of what I did, I'm not worthy of getting something. In that case, it's like, oh, I did this, and thus that's why I'm facing this consequence. And that feels like shame to me, right? Versus like just looking at the situation and being like, okay, it is what it is. Like, this is just the outcome. I like get into this place of feeling regret and feeling like, oh, well, I messed up. Like, I need to deal with it now. And that makes me a bad person. And that means that I'm not good enough ultimately. Yeah. It's interesting how we use situations to back up or amplify or give weight to things that we're already struggling with. And, you know, a comment on expectations. As much as we kind of know, I think on some level, that expectations or making assumptions or projecting things onto people or onto situations are illusions. They're not real. Expectations aren't real. They're not concrete, tangible, present reality. It's something that we want to happen, hope to have happen, are pining to have happen, or in some cases, for a lot of people, manipulating circumstances in life or manipulating people to get an outcome they want. I mean, this is pretty typical unconscious human behavior. But it's interesting, Whitney, because I feel like your reaction to it in feeling this shame or beating yourself up for having expectations, that's something that I still struggle with too. I'm sure a lot of people do in the sense that we may notice in life that when we have really concrete expectations, there's a lot of emotional weight that we attach to expecting certain things. I want my partner to show up and love me a certain way, or I'm expecting that if I put a certain amount of hard work in at my job, I'll get a promotion. I'll be acknowledged by my superiors. There's a trillion examples we could give in human existence, but I think the one side of it is we get hurt because we want so desperately to have a certain thing happen and it doesn't, but then we add other layers of hurt on top of what is because we're beating ourselves up for having expectations, right? And I relate to that. It's it, There's the what is of reality. We wanted something and we didn't get it, right? It's very clear. We wanted something, didn't happen. But then it's like, oh, why did I want it? And every time I expect things to happen and everything, that time I have a desire and it's not met, I end up being in pain and I'm hurting. Fuck me. Why did I do that? It's like we add so much pain and suffering on top of just the what is of a situation. We do that all the time. And I think that there's a lot of power. We hear about taking the story away from situations in life, that there's the reality of the what is of a situation, but all the layers of meaning and shame and guilt and story and what does this say about me? What does it mean about my place in the world? Does this mean I'm not lovable? Does this mean I'm not worthy? Like We add a lot of madness to reality, humans do. Because we try and add so many layers of trying to understand why things happen the way they happen. It almost goes back to that the episode we did with Kate Faust, the interview, or not the interview, rather, the conversation we had with her, where we're kind of addicted to finding meaning to things. And in some cases, Whitney, like what you're describing, the meaning is almost like, well, I feel a sense of shame now for having these expectations. Or what does this say about me that I've done so much work on myself 
and yet I'm still kind of a fragile, vulnerable human who wants things. That's something that I deal with, Wit, is like, but you've done so much meditation and so much therapy and so many courses and studied with so many people. Why do you still get caught in these illusions? Why do you still have expectations? Because we're fucking human. We're fallible. We're not avatars. We're not ascended masters. Could we be these things and transcend expectation and illusion and assumption and projection? Sure. I don't know any human being in my life who's been able to transcend those things completely, but maybe we get better at it, Wit. I don't know. Hopefully, we go through life and get better at dealing with those things. Maybe we don't eliminate them completely and transcend that aspect of our existence, but maybe we get better at dealing. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you're better at dealing with these kind of situations than you used to be? Hmm. It's interesting because when it comes to the word better, I feel like that might not be appropriate for this scenario simply because I know what you mean by it, Jason, but it's simply putting that mindset that we can constantly improve. And I think part of what's going on here, and to your point about like meditation, like I'm doing all this meditation, I should be better. I have a podcast about this subject matter. I should know these things. Like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? It's easy for us that study and have completely like centered our lives around topics like this to think that that means that we will constantly improve as if there's an end point. And I suppose getting better makes sense as long as you don't see it as getting to the top, as we've talked about so much, like this idea of like, oh, I'm getting closer to my goal. I think I've even become sensitive to that word goal over time. First of all, it's it's really overused. But as we've talked about capitalism and hustle culture and just like our addiction and our obsessions with improvement, I think that can be kind of damaging to our psyche because then if we don't feel like we're getting better, we can feel shame. If we don't feel like we're improving, we can feel shame. It reminds me a lot around weight is that we can get into this mindset of, I'm going to lose weight. And oh, I finally lost weight. I reached my weight goal. But if we don't keep that weight off, if we don't stay at that weight, then we'll feel shame. And our bodies are constantly fluctuating. I mean, I've experienced this firsthand. My body has been all different shapes and sizes. The weight is going up and down probably every minute of the day. But every time I've weighed myself, which is very rare right now, it's different. And it's different based on what I eat and the exercises I do and how well I sleep and all these other factors. So if I were to simply view my body as whether it was getting better or staying the same or getting worse, that's so detrimental to my mental state. And I think the same thing is true of experiences like this. Like, yes, awareness does give us the sense of getting better. But I think that goes back to a question for you, Jason, because you struggle with depression and a lot of similar emotions. And sure, you can get into this mindset of, am I getting better? Am I getting worse? Like, sometimes I feel like I've got a hold of this. Sometimes I don't. And I've certainly noticed that with you too. And certainly if I've had my moments, admittedly, where I felt perplexed, like, why isn't Jason, quote, getting better? He meditates every day. Shouldn't he be getting better? Why isn't Jason getting better? He's going to therapy. He's changing his diet. I've had those questions in my head. And now with my current awareness, I think, 
he's just fluctuating. It is human for us to fluctuate. And that's why I think this idea of better can actually be very detrimental when it comes to these elements of our psyche. I think it's really important the distinction you pointed out between this word better or using sort of, it's almost like it's qualitative language, but it's also kind of quantitative in the sense that how does one even measure better? In the context of talking about perhaps our level of awareness, our level of being able to respond to situations rather than react from our programming or our triggers, what is the measurement of this? So I think it's great that you brought up the potential deleterious nature of using a word like better in these situations of how we react or respond to things. It's like, why do we even need to measure those things? Is there a usefulness in even trying to measure it? Are they measurable? And I'm sure you could hook up electrical nodes or ways to track brain wave activity or what parts of the brain are lighting up when we react to something versus respond calmly. But ultimately, it's like, look, it's just a practice. We get a lot of situations in life where we are able to practice. For me, I think also this loops into the idea, Whitney, of very finite, concrete metrics that we use to judge our worthiness, our success, our desirability, our level of status in the world, right? I mean, what it comes down to is something where you talked about the goal and how that word is a little bit tricky. I personally don't like using that word anymore. And I would like to strike it certainly from the vocabulary you and I are using with Wellevator. And when we talk about our consistency code program, wellness warrior training, I actually want to go through and and change the word goal, unless it's appropriate, to the word aim. Because to me, an aim suggests something that's not this finite, measurable thing we're going for. And as an example, say from, I guess let's use yoga as a random example and just pulling this literally out of my ass. A goal would be, okay, by the end of the year, I want to be able to do scorpion pose. It's, you know, for some people, one of the most challenging poses. I've never been able to do it, but that seems to be one of those poses that if people are very goal-oriented yogis, they're like, oh, I want to do scorpion. But an aim would be, I want to use my yoga practice to love my body more, become more self-aware of my movement and my breath and how I'm carrying my body through the world, right? There's no finite destination that's measurable with that. That's okay. I'm going to use yoga to become more self-aware and be more in touch with my body rather than in 12 months, I'm going to be in scorpion pose. I'm not throwing goals under the bus, but I think to your point, Whitney, goals are very fixed. There's an end point. And in many cases, goals are very much about our status in the world and sort of like going back to this capitalist measurement system of, hey, look how much money I made at the end of the year. Aren't I great? Hey, look how much weight I lost at the end of the year. Aren't I great? It's maybe aims are more sustainable because there's no endpoint. Maybe rather than, okay, I'm going to make $500,000 this year, maybe an aim would, I want to increase my level of wealth and abundance. Maybe that's financial. Maybe there's other ways I can feel more abundant and wealthy in my life other than just the number of digits in my bank account, right? So to your point, I actually want to, in some ways, kind of eliminate goals from my vocabulary and my focus in life. I'd rather focus on aims because there's no fixed endpoint, and it's something that we can strive to feel more abundant, to feel more abundant, to be more abundant. 
we can strive to have more self-awareness and body awareness and more in touch with our desires and our heart, right? And so I'm wondering how that lands for you, this idea of aims versus goals and, and what, how that discussion resonates for you moving forward. It does feel a lot better. And I think there is a difference. And certainly you can use the word aim and goal interchangeably. And I believe I have. And it's these are just words, certainly. Like, And we're still figuring out how to phrase things differently. We did this episode recently about marketing. And it's going to take a while for us to go through all of our marketing, our websites, our, our language, and our social media. Like, There's so much to unravel when it comes to changing your language and changing the energy behind it. And I think certainly when it comes to specifics, like whether you say aim or, or goal, better or improved or whatever else you want to say, I mean, I just want to start with the fact that it's not that there's anything wrong with these words. It is just what those words mean to you. And as we've talked about in our episodes about cultural appropriation, you know, certainly Sometimes we mean one thing and somebody interprets it differently than us. I mean, going back to this experience that I had, this minute, relatively customer service experience I had where I was experiencing the discomfort of either embarrassment, shame, disappointment, all of those different emotions that can get entangled. Whereas the customer service person might not have felt anything. Like it just feels matter of fact to them, but they're the exact same words being felt completely differently by different people. And going to this word aim, I think the way you're describing it, Jason, it certainly does feel better to me. And maybe it does to other people. It's kind of like taking the pressure off. And I think what's really interesting about all of this is because they are just words, they do shift over time and they do mean things to different people based on their experiences. And that's part of what has become very complex for us or noticeably complex is that as we grow our awareness as human beings, become more mindful, uh, raise our consciousness, tap into deeper understandings of our mental and emotional well-being. It's like we're realizing that we're very sensitive as human beings. And also something I said earlier, which was that we might have felt these emotions and physical sensations throughout our lives, but if we weren't sensitive or, or aware of them, we wouldn't even know that we're having those experiences. That, that doesn't mean that they haven't been uncomfortable. It's just that we didn't, weren't as attuned into identifying what was uncomfortable, right? Identifying why the word goal or better might not feel good to us. And I think one of the reasons that this conversation is important is that you and I, Jason, are sharing that we experience these things and hopefully reminding people that just because we are so immersed in this world of well-being doesn't mean that we don't have those emotions. And I think we need more people to share these things to show that we're not alone. Because sometimes, and this is actually a big experience for me, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the podcast, but I certainly have on YouTube. I realized as I was studying shame that I feel ashamed to feel shame. And I felt ashamed of how I've responded to shame. And to explain what I mean by that, I've experienced so much shame in my life, again, mostly through Brene Brown and a few other authors 
that talk about that subject matter, they taught me what shame even was. I didn't know what shame was until maybe like three or four years ago. It was a relatively new understanding for me. And once I understood it, once it was defined for me and explained in depth, it was like, oh, this helps me understand why not only I feel the way I feel, but why I've made certain choices and and certain actions. And sometimes I catch myself and I'm like, I'm not doing that thing because I feel shame. And then I have this layer of like, well, you should be ashamed for not doing that thing. You should be ashamed for letting shame play such a big role in your life. Does that make sense? Like, it's like, I guess an easier way to describe this is let's say that you really love to sing, but you're too embarrassed to go out on stage to sing. So you don't sing. And then now you're embarrassed that you were embarrassed and didn't sing, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, because it just becomes a feedback loop. It's like Ouroboros, it's the snake eating its tail. You feel bad for feeling bad, so you feel worse, (laughs) right? I mean, what you're describing, Whitney, is just this reticulating negative feedback loop mentally that can go on and on ad infinitum. Exactly. And and that's a really fascinating thing to notice as well. And I think that's what part of what makes shame so complex. And also what makes me feel sad is that there is still, or maybe even more so, like I don't know if it's been continuous or it's just getting worse in some ways. Like there is a lot of judgment online. There is a lot of judgment in the media that we're seeing. Like we've talked about how we address this in our episode with Ben Decker, which is coming up, I think, next week. Is that right? I believe so. It's We record all these episodes so far in advance. His episode is scheduled for December 18th. So for you, the listener, we really encourage you to subscribe to the show so you'll get notified of episodes like that because it's a really good one. And if you're listening to this after Ben's episode came out on December 18th, 2020, make sure to go back and check it out. We talked a lot about politics, and I feel like my awareness around shame has become so heightened that I notice it all the time within other people. And there's a lot of shame in the media. There's a lot of shame in politics. There's a ton of shame online. That's deeply affected me, and I think it affects a lot more people then even realize it's affecting them, right? That's why it's so important to talk about these things is that we need to not only recognize when it's happening, but we have to start to get ourselves out of this this cycle that you're talking about, Jason. It's like, I think that's part of where I was grateful to experience that discomfort I described in this seemingly small customer service incident. It was like, oh, okay, I'm identifying what this physical sensation I have is. And once I've identified it, I can start to step back and and kind of analyze it, understand it better, process it. And through that act of bringing it to the surface, maybe it'll dissipate. It doesn't mean that it'll ever fully go away. And this is coming back to this word better. It's like, my goal is not to get rid of all my unpleasant emotions and discomfort. It's not to like, heal myself so I never feel discomfort again. (laughs) I think that's impossible, honestly. But it's simply that the more that I can identify it, it's like, oh, okay, like I can let it dissipate so it doesn't feel as intense. So I don't store it in my body. So I don't walk around with this 
unpleasant emotion all the time. And that actually leads me to something else, Jason, that I think this is actually great timing as we are nearing the end of 2020 and getting close to the beginning of a brand new year when people tend to reflect a lot and set resolutions. And certainly that word goal is thrown a lot around this time of year. And talking about improving and getting better, like all those phrases come up, right? And they sound really good to us in theory, but come mid-January, early February, if you haven't reached those goals, if you haven't stuck with your habits, if you don't feel like you're getting better, shame can really come into play. In fact, I'm going to make a note for us to record a, an episode in a month or so so we can address shame again, because I feel like a lot of people are going to need some support in the end of January. But uh, what I have been kind of reflecting on is this emotional weight of feeling like there's so much to do all the time, Jason. You know, and this ties back into our ongoing conversations about hustle culture and productivity and how, again, like I've been working on my like strategies and my calendar and my to-do list and like really trying to refine it, trying to tune into what makes me feel good, trying to say no more often, being better about setting boundaries. I've been doing that for years. And yet I still feel the emotional weight and sometimes the physical discomfort of overwhelm, which I know you do, Jason. And that sense where like literally sometimes I can't sleep because I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so much to do tomorrow. That is such a common human emotion. And the other day I was thinking about this and wondering like, why? Why am I living this way? Like, why am I choosing this? And when I say choosing, I'm not saying like, again, Whitney, it's your fault that you feel overwhelmed or Whitney, like you're the one that's put all this stuff on your plate. Like now you have to deal with it. That My brain can certainly go to that place. But when I'm saying, why am I choosing this? Like, I'm literally putting things on my calendar and on my to-do list. Like I'm choosing to do most of those things, right? Why do I keep choosing to add more and more and more? Why do I keep choosing to do projects that take up a ton of time and energy? And how can I shift out of that? It's not a, an easy fix. That's the other thing I've realized. And I think I'm curious, Jason, to hear where you're at with that. Because I, I think when I feel overwhelmed, this happened to me last night. I was trying to fall asleep. I was feeling overwhelmed. I was thinking about everything I needed to do today. And I just had to get up and look at my to-do list. I was like, I need to fix this right now. I felt almost like this panic sensation of, I got to go do something. I got to take things off my to-do list. I got to move things around because that overwhelm makes me feel panicked. But I have to also realize that as I can't fix it right away, I can't like immediately remove that overwhelm sensation because it's been building up in my body and my mind for so long, probably years. And that's part of this conversation too, is that shame and addiction to productivity and self-improvement and getting better, that's been ingrained in us for most, if not all of our lives. And just like losing weight is a slow process, unraveling from all of these overwhelmed emotions, to kind of put it in a category, takes a long time. It could take us years. We can't just snap our fingers and magically release all of that tension. 
Well, my curiosity is when you use the word overwhelm, what does that even mean to you? In the sense of not just body sensations or what's coming up for you on a physical level, I mean more of the sort of psychological connotations of of what you're perceiving. Let me be more clear because I'm curious what you mean when you say you feel overwhelmed. Is it that if I don't get the things done I've agreed to do, something bad will happen? Someone may perceive me in a negative way. I might perceive myself in a negative way. I may let someone down. I might let myself down. What is the conclusion on the other side of overwhelm that leads to the emotions that are entangled in overwhelm? Am I phrasing the question right? It's like on the other side of overwhelm, it's like if you quote fail or don't do the things on the to-do list, what do you think is going to happen? Is it a rhetorical question? Is it a question for both of us, Jason? Because I really want to hear your answer too. Yes. And I also want to hear like what illusory outcomes, because the outcome doesn't exist yet, right? On the other side of overwhelm, you don't know what's going to happen. So my curiosity is, are you afraid of something? Are you concerned about an outcome that hasn't happened? Is there something punitive or a consequence on the other side of the overwhelm? I'll definitely answer it, but I want to put the ball back in your court, Whitney, because (laughs) that word overwhelm feels loaded to me. And I'm curious for you, why does it feel loaded and how exactly is it loaded? I mean, this is a complex unraveling, I suppose. And I'm using overwhelm as like a catch-all word because I, I don't think that overwhelm is the only or necessarily even the best word to describe this experience, but I think it's a very familiar word. It's, for me the sensation of I have more that I've chosen to do and take on than I feel like I can either actually do energetically or actually do time-wise or more importantly, more than I actually want to do. And that, that third part of it is a huge factor especially recently. <laughs> In fact, it reminds me of that Instagram post I sent you the other day, Jason, about like, I haven't done any work and I'm not making any money. <laughs> you know, it's like kind of the way that I interpreted that. It was from this account, Sky Banyas, maybe? I don't know. I'm always just mispronouncing things. So I probably botched that. But I will link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com. So for you, the listener, if you've never visited our website before, if you go to wellevator.com, You can click on the podcast section and every single episode of this podcast has show notes where we link to anything we've referenced. And this is a wonderful Instagram account that I came across recently. And this post made me laugh. It said, how to do no work and make no money. And it was like image of a book, right? And I laughed at that because sometimes I don't feel like doing work. And so sometimes that means I won't make money. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I won't make money. Sometimes you make money from previous work, right? So there's not a direct correlation between how much we work and how much money we make for sure. But I think this just made me laugh because I thought sometimes I'm in a stage where I would rather not make money because I don't want to be working as much. We talk about hustle culture a lot. The addiction to productivity and efficiency is because I think right now where we're at as a society is we are truly addicted to the grind. And we have been programmed, most of us, it really depends on your age range, but I would say the general 
consensus through social media and conversations and anything online is that like a lot of people want to grind. A lot of people associate hard work with good money. And certainly we can dig into the psychology of money, but we're not going to do that in this episode per se. This feeling of overwhelm, though, Jason, is something I usually associate with lots of work. It's like having a lot of things on my to-do list. Sometimes just looking at my to-do list causes me to feel overwhelmed. And that's why last night I got out of bed and I went to my to-do list and I checked it, first of all, because part of the emotion that I was experiencing was like paranoia. Did I forget to do something? Right. And to answer one of your questions, Jason, it's like, yeah, I'm terrified of forgetting to do something. That's actually a really, really deep fear of mine. I have ongoing or repetitive nightmares or bad dreams of not doing something and having like a major consequence, like losing things. I have frequent dreams about losing things. I have dreams of animals dying to get morbid. That's a reoccurring dream for me is that because I didn't take care of an animal, it died. It's really odd. But there's this dream of I forgot to do something and there's a major consequence to it. So sometimes I can't even fall asleep because that emotion is there. It's like, oh, did I forget to answer this email? And now I missed out on this business opportunity. Did I forget to answer this email? And now I'm going to have something taken away from me, whether it's a job opportunity or money or somebody's upset with me, right? I have a lot of tension. This is like a therapy session, but hopefully it's helpful to other people listening. I have fears of losing friendships over not responding or forgetting something. You know, it's like all this like forgetfulness of fear around it. And I think it gets maximized by this feeling of like having so much to do that something's going to get lost, right? Like I have such a long to-do list that ultimately something is going to be forgotten or something's not going to get the attention it deserves. And that's what I'm talking about here is like, I need to choose to take on less because if I take on less, then it's easier for me to focus on the important things and thus it lessens my chance of forgetting something and thus part of that fear is taken away. Well, I just appreciate you explaining things so eloquently. And it's an interesting thing, I think, this idea of taking on too much or taking on more than we want, more than we desire. And if I examine where the moments in my life where I've been really overwhelmed or, quote, taken on too much, I think the seed of it is pretty deep. I certainly think if we examine the roots of our hustle culture and our overwork culture and a lot of the tentacles of a really toxic capitalist system that we're in that encourages people to burn themselves out and grind themselves into the ground, often at the benefit and the wealth of other people. I mean, let's just be really honest about that. The federal minimum wage. I don't think has increased past, what is it, $7.50 or $8.50? I think we need to fact check that for a second. What is the federal minimum wage right now? Let me, let me look that up because I have a point to make about all this. Okay, $7.25 per hour. The federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. That has not been raised in, I think, at least over a decade. So if we have this idea that, quote, hard work makes you wealthy or hard work gets you success, it's fucking bullshit because there are people who are working their asses off for minimum wage in this world. Consequently, the people they, quote, serve 
are the ones generally making millions or billions of dollars, right? I mean, we don't need to get into the mechanics of how fucked our system is. In my opinion, it's fucked because it's a whole lot of people working their asses off, which are clearly not generating wealth for themselves and very, very few people at the top of the pyramid benefiting from all the hard work of people making $7.25 an hour. But I don't want to get into that portion of the macroeconomics and how destructive our system is. What I want to focus on is the mentality behind it, is that there is this very deep-seated, puritanical-based sense of he or she who works the hardest wins God's favor. Like There is a deep, lineage-based, generational mentality that the harder you work, the more God loves you. Like It's a deep, deep-seated subconscious thing, Whitney, in the sense that if you toil, you'll be rewarded for it. But that's not necessarily true in our culture, the way things have been set up. If you toil, you survive. Not necessarily rewarded in the sense, but I still think that's a thing that motivates a lot of people, is this idea that if I'm the one who works the hardest, and I take on the most, and I suffer for what I get, then I'm the one who's won the suffering Olympics, right? Because God will favor me. Like I really think if we dig into Again, the more toxic aspects of our culture, it's this idea of some kind of superiority of hard work. But unfortunately, I think the corporate system and the capitalist system uses this subconscious mentality to their advantage. It's like, yeah, just work. But again, working hard doesn't guarantee you're going to get a raise. Working hard doesn't guarantee you're going to increase your wealth. Working hard doesn't guarantee you're going to move up to a different class or income bracket, it guarantees nothing. But we phrase hard work and we frame hustle and we frame the grind in this pseudo mentality of you'll be rewarded and you'll win God's favor. And hey, you know what? Congratulations. But none of it's true, Whitney. If we look under the hood of this belief system, none of it's true. I mean, to be honest, like I'll get political for a second. Like, when all of the madness of the post-election stuff was kind of going down and during COVID and during all of the challenges that we've had in, in our system, in our society this year, would it be appropriate for our president to go and like play as much golf as he has? That's up for debate. But I think when you're in the middle of an economic crisis and the worst economic conditions since the Great Depression in 100 years, and you're going to like go play golf? Mm. I think this goes back to, again, this idea of hard work. Like, I guess my point is, Whitney, is we need to deconstruct all of this mentally to ourselves. And are many jobs in our society just in service of generating wealth for other people? Like, let's really look at that for a second. You know what I'm saying? Like, how many jobs are just in service of making millions or billions for other people at the top of the pyramid? If we really get real about it, it's kind of horrifying to think about. For sure. And this is one of the reasons I continue to reference the book Do Nothing by Celeste Headley. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And actually, speaking of books, we recently switched over to a wonderful platform called Bookshop, which is all about raising money for local bookstores. And Jason and I have spent the last few months, at least six months, looking for alternatives to Amazon, which kind of ties into this discussion. And we do still link to Amazon sometimes. We're not Amazon free. I order on Amazon every once in a while. 
I'm just trying to slowly dissolve my relationship with them. I don't know if I'll ever entirely let go of it, but the reason being is Jeff Bezos, you know, there's a huge gap between how much money he makes and how much money his employees make and how his business has affected small business. And we would just love to support small businesses and local shops as frequently as possible. So when you go to wellevator.com and check out the show notes for this episode, you will find a link to bookshop.org. And you can actually just go directly to our link there. It's bookshop.org slash shop slash Wellevator, which again is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. I don't know if you can search for our shop on their website, but uh, we have been building up our recommendations on there. And currently, Do Nothing has been one of our top recommendations because she gets deep into the subject matter that you're bringing up, Jason. So I think that you would absolutely love that book because she gets into the whole history of it. And there's a big section about the religious sides of our addiction to productivity. In fact, I will pull that up as quickly as possible because I can read some of the quotes from that book. Yeah, I want to interject just really quickly too, Whitney, in terms of my cosmology around all this. It's not just the aspect of being raised in a Catholic family, you know, and this idea of toil and sweat from the brow and hard work will be favored and rewarded by God. But there's also the aspect of growing up in Detroit, where one of the big catchphrases of that city is Detroit hustles harder. There's all these t-shirts that came out like 10 years ago of like, an old acquaintance of mine called it the Detroit inferiority complex, is there's always this sense that if you're from Detroit, you have to outwork everyone in the room to be acknowledged. Whether you're in a band or you're in a business, it's like Detroit's been pissed on and shit on and fucked with for so long that there's this mentality that you do have to hustle harder if you're from Detroit. You do have to work harder to get the acknowledgement and the recognition because of where you're from. So for me, it's definitely been a shit sandwich in the sense of needing to decode and demystify and deprogram myself of, hey man, you got to outwork everyone in the room because you're from Detroit. And also God will love you more if you outwork everyone. It's kind of, it's fucked up in many ways, you know, in the sense that on the other side of it, if I think back to the moments in my career that I worked myself to exhaustion, like to the point of, you know, this place, Whitney, of like, I don't feel good. Like I've worked myself into sickness. Did God love me more? Did I get rewarded for some sense of working myself into sickness, working myself in some ways into deeper depression? Like it's really a dangerous game we're playing when we think about it. And the subconscious motives of people thinking that they will be more holy, more revered, more celebrated. But you know what? On the other side of it, was I happier as a result? No. Did I feel more loved by God, my mom, my friends, the people? Like, you guys will love me more. Look how hard I've worked. Not really. So then what is this bullshit illusion and these lies that we're buying into that we will somehow be holier, more revered, happier, more fulfilled at the other side of grinding ourselves into the ground? My personal experiences, I've found none of that. I found none of those things waiting on the other side of the, quote, finish line for me. And I think that's incredibly important to discuss that. It's bringing to light some of these myths that we've heard throughout our lives and our parents heard throughout their lives. And 
I found the section in that book, Do Nothing, that talks about this. And the author, Celeste, said that the Catholic Church taught believers to believe that they had to perform good works in order to attain heaven. And that sloth, which is the reluctance to work, is one of the seven deadly sins. And so we began to feel like good and faithful people are recognized through the hard work that they do and their efficient labor. And if you're sitting around, you're not just lazy, you're also wasting money. There are quotes like, there is nothing good, great, or desirable that does not come by some kind of labor. And I didn't take a note on who said that, but there's just so much of this mentality. We believe that people are unsuccessful because they're not working hard enough. And we started to idolize rich, self-made men like Thomas Edison and Henry Ford. We've heard all these rags to riches tales in which a young person achieves success through their own good character and hard work. And Americans especially have believed for at least 100 years that we can rise to riches through honest labor and that fuels our willingness to work so much. And even when we're not reaping the profits of our own labor, we will continue to drown ourselves in work, right? And I can relate to that as well. And I mean, this is just a few little parts from this book, Do Nothing, that is really one of the best books I've read this year. And I can't say enough about In fact, I'm trying to get the author on our show at some point. So another reason to subscribe for you, the listener, if you have not yet, (laughs) because you'll be notified. Otherwise, uh, even listening to podcasts can be overwhelming. And we certainly don't expect you to listen to every episode, but peruse them or listen to segments of them and see if they uh, sound good to you. We know that the show is long, but we're always here to, to give you some aha moments, hopefully, and help you think about things differently and reflect on your own experiences. And hopefully this conversation is bringing to light something within you, or perhaps even you're noticing behaviors within other people and understanding them better. That's really a huge part of our aim. You know, I think it's interesting too, this idea that if you pay people sort of a a minimum living wage, right? We've heard about these concepts of uh, universal basic, basic income. There's a book that I started reading called Give People Money, which is sort of the foundational elements of UBI, universal basic income of, of every citizen in a nation gets a certain minimum amount, kind of what we've been seeing a little bit with the CARES Act this year, and who knows what's going to come next in 2021. But this idea that all citizens of a nation will get a minimum amount of money every single month to live on, not something lavish where they're going to be going to Bali every month, but basic care and needs subsidized by the government to have food and shelter and housing and utilities, things like that. It reminds me, Whitney, of a few years ago, there was a CEO, I think he was in Seattle. His name is Dan Price. You may have heard this, that he instituted this policy to pay all of his 120 employees. I think he was at a card payment company up up there, that every single employment was going to get at least $70,000, that he took a pay cut of a million dollars. I think this was 2015. And five years later, he says that the gamble he made paid off, right? That everybody in the company is making 70 grand. And he's noticed uh, Gravity Payments is the company. I had to remember it. That people's quality of life and their productivity and their happiness 
and the culture at the company has been drastically changed that people were able to buy houses, people were able to pay off debt. More than 10% of the company has been been able to buy their own homes in Seattle, which is one of the most expensive housing markets in the US. I mean, it goes on and on. We'll link to this story in the BBC that talks about the last five years of this company. And I say this because it's a choice that Dan Price made that he didn't need to be earning a million dollars a year, right? He's like, I'm going to make the same amount of money. I'm going to make 70 grand, the same as every employee in the company. I bring this up because you brought up Jeff Bezos. I don't want to use Jeff Bezos as like the pin cushion for toxic capitalism, but it is interesting to note that statistically, there was a, something that came out online a few days ago that said that Jeff Bezos could pay every single employee at Amazon. I don't know how many people work for Amazon. I mean, let's look it up just for shits and giggles, the number of employees at Amazon, because I want to emphasize this point and contrast it with Dan Price. Wow. Apparently, there's 876,000 permanent employees. And with temporary hires, there's upwards of 1.2 million, Whitney, okay? That Jeff Bezos could pay every single one of those people $150,000, and he would still have more wealth than he had prior to the pandemic. Like, take that in for a second. He could pay every single person $150,000 and still be wealthier than before March of this year. And to put it into perspective, I saw a video, I think, on TikTok that blew my mind. And I don't know if you've ever looked at any of this before, Jason, but in this video, this person was talking about the difference between a million and a billion. And I think a lot of us think of a billion as not that much money. And (laughs) oh, really? (laughs) I mean it though, because it's there are people like Jeff Bezos who makes $186 billion. That's his net worth. Bill Gates, $119 billion. Elon Musk, $132 billion. We have a lot of billionaires. And don't you remember growing up, Jason, when like being a millionaire was like a really amazing thing? And just our lifetimes alone, it has become not that big of a deal to see billionaires, right? So I think that in our brains, we just think, all right, like a billion dollars, that's not that much money. Well, if you put it into perspective, this is my favorite comparison for, especially for like, maybe the word visual isn't the best uh, word here, but like uh, just something that makes it really easy to think about. A million seconds adds up to 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. Holy shit. So I'll say that again. Shit. A million seconds, if you add that up, it's 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. And that just really (laughs) makes you realize Jeff Bezos, what's 186 times 31? That's Jeff Bezos equivalent. Let me make sure I got the math right here. I think if I got the math right, it's equivalent of him having 5,766 years, right? Like, so when we think about how much time it takes to make that much money, somebody else was saying, gosh, I think in that same video, they were talking about how long it would take to make a million dollars. Let's see, like it was something broken down into like 5,000 a day. 
if you were making $5,000 a day, it would take you 200,000 days to get to a billion dollars. That's insane. I mean, the scale of it is, <laughs> the scale of what we're talking about, I'm no economist, right? Neither one of us are. But I have to imagine, Whitney, that, that there's going to be some sort of subversion of this. Apparently, as of June of this year, they say that there's 46.8 million millionaires, which includes billionaires, okay? Like there's 46.8 million people who have at least a million dollars in the world. Now, what percentage of that is the global population? That's 0.9. That's not even 1% of the global human population, okay? 0.9% who own over half of the global wealth in the world. That's all societies, all denominations at over $361 trillion. Okay. The bottom half has less than that amount, right? I mean, what we're talking about is, is something that is at a certain point has to be unsustainable. And again, maybe I'm not an economist, but I have to imagine if there's less than 1% of the human population who owns the majority of the wealth on the planet, we're talking about a technocracy, oligarchies, dictatorships. I mean, we're talking about a horrifically imbalanced sense of power on the planet. Really? Like, and I'm not getting into doomsday shit here, but is it appropriate or ethical or even good for the state of humanity and our continued, I don't know, health, wellness, sustainability when you have less than 1% of humans owning the majority of the wealth? I personally don't think it is. And then we get into, I don't know, this idea of, quote, earned it. You know, you and I have talked about this idea of people being self-made. And it came up again recently with Jake Paul. He was on the undercard for the Mike Tyson fight. And he beat Nate Robinson, who was a former NBA basketball player. And one of the interviews I saw briefly was Jake Paul going on this whole you know rant about being self-made. And I'm like, dude, this whole mythology and this whole idea of deifying people who are, quote, self-made and who, quote, earned it, these terminologies are extremely misleading, extremely misleading. And what's challenging about it is that it all ties into our collective addiction to productivity, success, hustle, et cetera, and ultimately how much that impacts our well-being. And clearly that's impacted us, me and Jason, is because it can lead to us feeling anxious, overwhelmed, depressed, unsatisfied, not good enough. All of these things are themes and money is just a huge part of our self-esteem and how we perceive ourselves as being worthy. Even going back to the original inspiration for this conversation and looking at what I was experiencing, it wasn't just that I was disappointed. It was also partially that I was afraid because this customer service experience made me think, am I going to have to spend more money than I initially thought I was going to have to spend? And how hard is it for me to make that money? And do I have that money in my bank account? How soon will I have that money? Like All of these different things that come up that really trigger our survival fears, right? It's like this constant need to make more money so that we can sustain ourselves and we can protect ourselves from unexpected things that happen, things that don't go our way. I mean, there is so much stress within us when it comes to this that it can just feel so, again, using this word overwhelming. It's like a lot of us just can't even function. We're just trying to cope and make it through the day. And 
if we don't step back and reflect on all of these things, it can just eat away at us. And I think when we see people like Jeff Bezos and we recognize how much money that man actually has, which is truly mind blowing, like it's unbelievable when you break it down into seconds or how much money it would take to make that and recognizing that, yes, it's on one hand, doesn't seem like that big of a deal to make a billion dollars, but it is a huge deal, right? Like it is a huge deal that Jake Paul and Logan Paul and all these other big influencers have made as much money as they're making, right? It's a big deal that they've achieved that. So we need to give them credit because that's not easy. But to your point, Jason, is it self-made? I mean, that's hard to say. And maybe it was relatively easy because of how young they are and how it seems like they just made some videos on Vine and YouTube and podcast episodes and suddenly they're multimillionaires on their way to billionaires and all of this. It's like, wow, like it's so easy. Anybody can do it. But that feeds right back into everything we're discussing today. It's like these people that make it seem so easy are adding to this capitalistic perspective and this hustle culture because we believe that if we just work as hard as that person, then we will get those same results. It's right within our grasp. That is part of the American and I'm sure other countries experience this as well, but this American mindset of everybody can do it is within our reach. And I think that actually can do us more harm than good and can definitely lead to us feeling overwhelmed and not good enough. And certainly this conversation we could go on and on about, but I think I'm ready to pause on this for now and grateful to discuss this more. I mean, the reason it keeps coming up is this is a complex subject matter. It's not easy. It's something that we experience very frequently, no matter how much we talk about it. (laughs) We are still experiencing it, meaning me and Jason, and perhaps you as well as a listener. So we want to remind you that you're not alone. We want to remind you that we're here processing it right alongside you. And we do believe that there's hope, even if things don't change drastically or, quote, get better, we can certainly lighten the load, as I have been working on. It's not about completely getting rid of these tough experiences and never feeling overwhelmed again. But it's simply noticing it and trying to make more conscious choices and be more satisfied. There's a reason why one of the biggest well-being tips is to reflect on what you're grateful for at the beginning and or the end of each day. And it really is true. It's It's a cliche thing, right? But if you just take a moment right now, perhaps, to share what you're grateful for with yourself, with other people, it will show you that you are enough and that you have enough. You don't need to be a millionaire or a billionaire. You don't need to be a huge influencer. You don't need to be famous. You don't need to be the top performing person at your workplace or your school. You don't need to be the best romantic partner or parent. It's simply just taking it day by day and lightening that emotional load so that you can feel good. I think that's really what it comes down to. I think that was one of the most eloquent and potent and heartfelt closers you've ever shared, Whitney. I thought that was very just on the point. Thank you for that. That was just wonderful. Well, I'm giving myself a little pat in the back (laughs) because I like to be acknowledged. Thank you for acknowledging me, Jason. You're welcome. You're welcome. And as Whitney mentioned to you, dear listener, if you have any perspectives on all this, we Always love to hear from you. Our direct email is hello at wellevator.com. 
which is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, which is also our website where you can find the show notes for this episode. We also have brand shout outs. I almost forgot about that. Oi, I don't know that I came prepared. I might have to go into the annals here, Whitney, and dig something up. Come on. I mean, here's the funny thing. I think I said this the last time that you and I experience so much, Jason. We receive so many products. I mean, this is actually something I'm grateful for. And I, I think brand shoutouts are perfectly timed because I the reason that we share these things is because we are grateful for them. And we want to make sure that you, the listener, know about all the incredible things that exist in the world. So I imagine, Jason, you must have received something or purchased something recently that you are very grateful for. I actually just reapplied some chapstick from Ladybug Jane, which I talked about, raved about really in a recent episode. But my new shout out is actually a bit of an oldie, and that is Coconut Bliss. They sent me the sweetest, pun intended, care package the other day. I think it was part of a selection of uh, gluten-free products that I received because there's a new or revamped, I believe, gluten-free certification. I'm actually pulling that up right now because I want to make sure I get the, uh, the terminology right here. Yes, it's the Gluten Intolerance Group. They did a little sampling campaign. Were you part of that, Jason? Yes, but I haven't posted anything yet because... But did you get the Coconut Bliss too? No, I did not. Oh. I did not get the Coconut Bliss. I didn't. Damn. Well, I, I hope I'm not rubbing it in, but uh, I was really grateful to get Coconut Bliss because they're very OG. Like Coconut Bliss is truly an OG, meaning original vegan ice cream brand. I'm trying to look up right now my history with Coconut Bliss. It goes back to 2008. Whoa, this is crazy. I just found a, oh my gosh, this is really amusing. I just found an email that I sent to the amazing Co-Opportunity, which is a great natural market and co-op in Santa Monica and now Culver City, California and in the Los Angeles area. <laughs> Jason, this is so funny. An email to the Co-Opportunity on in August 2008 asking for them to have more flavors of Coconut Bliss. So I have been enjoying this ice cream for over 12 years now. I don't know where I first found it, but uh, perhaps it was at... Um, oh, here it is. Actually, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I found another email of me messaging Coconut Bliss and saying to them, I just tried Coconut Bliss for the first time and was blown away. As a vegan, I'm always looking for good non-dairy desserts, but I prefer the simple and healthy options. So this is perfect for me. That was sent on August 6, 2008. So how cool that I documented trying it. No surprise because that's what I was my whole career with uh, veganism revolves around sampling products. And here I am uh, 12 years plus later talking about another brand that's influenced me. Anyways, that nostalgia has served me and when I got this wonderful care package and they sent me some of their incredible flavors of their ice creams. In fact, one of them, which I have to pull up because I want to make sure I get the name right. I think it's a gingerbread cookie caramel I had on my homemade gluten-free apple pie. Ginger cookie 
and caramel is the exact flavor. And that's not a flavor I would typically go for in an ice cream. I'm not really into like ginger flavor. I mean, not not in general, but like in an ice cream, I'm more of a chocolate flavor person. But that was so perfect on the apple pie I made for Thanksgiving. And they also sent one of my favorite products of theirs, which is their salted caramel ice cream bars, which is like a vanilla ice cream with swirls of salted caramel dipped in chocolate. It's orgasmic. And there's a ton of others. They sent me one of their amazing ice cream sandwiches, which are made with delicious chocolate chip, gluten-free vegan cookies. I mean, Coconut Bliss has stood the test of time, which not every brand can say. Jason and I like to laugh and make jokes sometimes at the expense of people that have still been making the same exact product since 1995. And so it's nice to see when a brand can evolve, but also stay true to their roots because their roots were always fantastic. Well said. Well said. My shout out is not a food product. It's actually a journal. So I have an acquaintance slash friend who I've guested on her podcast. And her name is Trisha Huffman. She is also known as Your Joyologist. We will link to her website and her social media handles in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. Again, it's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And over the years, Trisha sent me a lot of her amazing products. She has some really wonderful to-do lists uh, that have these great affirmations on them. She sent me these great, incredible high-quality coffee mugs that say, like, see the good. Another one of my favorites is fuck the shoulds, do the wants. So she just sent me, which is perfect timing as we get closer to the start of the new year, this gorgeous hardbound journal that she has. Really, really thick paperweight, really nicely bound, gorgeous black and gold trim. It's just a beautiful, simple journal. And I love everything that she does because the quality of the products are so high. They have really great, fun affirmations. And black and gold is one of my favorite color combinations. So I just want to give a long overdue shout out. Actually, she would be a great person to have as a guest on the podcast. Ding, ding, ding. Bright light bulb over my head right now, but you can't see it. So shout out to Trisha, her brand, Your Joyologist. Check out her amazing mugs, her to-do lists, her journals. Again, it's just really high vibe, great quality. And I just love Trisha and everything she does. See, I knew you would be able to think of something that you're grateful for, Jason. And of course, it doesn't have to be a food product. I mean, I think that we tend to shout out food products because we receive a lot of them. But I shot out Ladybug Jane the other day because I'm obsessed with them. We're shouting out books all the time. Like We try to mix it up. you know. Like There's so much to share. And sometimes we just need to write it all down and make sure we get to every one of them because that's actually a goal of mine (laughs) or an aim, I should say. Something that I want to take off, I want to accomplish in order to remove some weight is to document like all the brands and products that I have tried, especially a lot of brands that have sent me things to try and in order to share my opinion and to help spread the word, I want to make sure that I get to all of them, you know, and and maybe I will never actually complete it. Maybe it's a never-ending list, a bottomless pit, but I think that through the process of us shouting out brands on this podcast, we can introduce people to a lot of incredible things that are out there, you know, like I bet you there are some people that have never heard of Coconut Bliss, even though it's been around since at least 2008. 
And that's kind of the cool thing about our work is you can't make assumptions about what people know about and what they don't. Just And that kind of ties into this whole conversation we've had today is we can't assume that we know what people know or feel what people feel. And our job here is to raise our own awareness and help you raise awareness as a listener. We hope we accomplish that in this episode or at least one of our episodes that you've listened to all the time as we get closer to celebrating our one-year anniversary of doing this podcast. We thank you so much for listening. We have so much in store for you as we go into the next year of the show. We have giveaways and amazing guests that we're inviting on and scheduling and just really here to serve you in as many ways as we possibly can. And part of the best way for us to find out what you want, what you would like more of or even less of, what is resonating with you is to send us a message. Reach out to us through social media if that's convenient to you. You can find us at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, TikTok. We're actually trying to do more on TikTok now. And we have done a lot more on our Instagram recently. So if you haven't checked it out in a while, please do. We'd love your feedback on it. And then if social media, Instagram included, is not your jam, if you're doing a a social media detox, if you've stopped using social media altogether for your own mental well-being, we totally support you in that. And you can reach out to us in the podcast section of our website. Like I said, there's the show notes and each show note has a comment section. You can share something there. You can also reach us through our email address, which is completely private. It's hello at wellevator.com. Just remember that sometimes we use your emails as inspiration. So if there's anything there that you don't want us to share, please specify it. We'll always keep what you write to us anonymous. But if you want to keep the entire email private, like never shared or spoken out loud, we respect that. Just let us know and that won't become part of an upcoming episode (laughs) in full transparency. Sometimes it does. We are so grateful for you listening. And as I mentioned earlier, If you want to subscribe to the show, that's a really great way to get notifications and find out what's coming up down the pipeline. And we will be back with another episode very soon. Until then, we're wishing you all the very best with your health and well-being journey. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.